Welcome to FF Plus, a new spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, and discussion. Here you will find a little bit of everything, from what's been entertaining us, to trailer reactions, industry hot topic conversation, and even film award predictions. We hope you'll enjoy this addition to the Feelin' Film lineup and join us each week. Now, on to the show. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of FF+. I'm Aaron, and here with me tonight for a couple of reviews and a little conversation is my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Hey, everyone. So we like to just jump right in on these episodes and not waste any of your time. What we have on tap for you tonight is a review of Cobra Kai Season 2, a preview slash very minimal review and some reaction about a movie called The Farewell, a review of John Wick 3 Parabellum, and then we're going to talk a little bit about box office totals as well. So let's get into it. Patrick, I'm going to let you get started for us because you were gone last week traveling, you're back in the saddle, and frankly, you have been busting your chops ready to go to talk about Cobra Kai Season 2. This is why I regret FF Plus being a non-spoilery podcast that we do because there's so much I want to talk about. Well, as someone who has not seen it yet, I appreciate that this is a spoiler-free review you're about to give us <laughs> because I, I don't do want my to spoil best. <laughs> I will do my best, but at every turn, I'm just going to tell you, if you haven't seen this, you need to see it. And um, if you guys have been hiding under a rock or living somewhere where the world of Karate Kid only exists in 1984, I'll tell you, Cobra Kai Season 2 picks up where Season 1 left off. It continues the story of Daniel and Johnny and their rivalry at its core. But with the events of last season unfolding the way they did, which I'm not going to spoil that either because obviously people haven't seen that. Dummies. Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the rivalry has actually motivated Daniel to start his own dojo, Miyagi-Do, or kind of reinvigorating what he and Mr. Miyagi had started uh, to compete with Johnny's Cobra Kai. I went into season two excited, but a little apprehensive. Season one kind of left me on a mid-high, not a high-high. The first two episodes felt like when I got to see them as part of a, a Fathom event type thing, um, I was really excited that kind of came across as a little hokey, a little cheesy, a little kind of self-efficating or whatever. I, I watched these episodes and I said, okay, is this going to get better or is this just going to be about poking fun at the 1980s and this movie franchise? And as that season went on, things got progressively better. It didn't feel as cheesy. There were still a bunch of callbacks to the original movies and a lot of little nuggets here and there and Easter eggs. And so it ended in a way that felt like, okay, we're going to have a season two. So season two rolls around. And Aaron, I got to tell you, this thing surprised the heck out of me with the way in which it has grown. There's an expansion on small ideas from the first couple of movies, um, particularly showing mercy, that idea from, from Cobra Kai, or not showing mercy in that case. No mercy. What, Come on no mercy. now. Right. Strike first, strike hard, no mercy. That becomes a key component in the back half of the season. What season one did by feeling somewhat hokey and needing to find its legs, season two takes itself somewhat seriously in having that balance to use a, a Miyagi term, right? And it feels like a natural progression of a story that doesn't rely so heavily on nostalgia and throwbacks. Like it feels very much like a matured out version, a mature story. It feels like it makes sense to 
extend the story of Daniel and Johnny. What season one did was getting us reacclimated to that world and kind of throwing us back into the world of cruel summer and these things like that and, and connecting us. Season two takes advantage of this cast of teenagers that for all intents and purposes are just really good. Like they play great teenagers. The teen angst in this is it feels completely like Melrose Place and Lady Bird kind of thrown together where you have what we talked about on our Lady Bird episode, a necessary emphasis on what it's like to be a teenager. So it feels theatrical, but it also feels kind of authentic. And Johnny's character gets more fleshed out, as does Daniel's. Some of the best training and fighting choreography I have seen in in a while. And I'm a huge fan of what the W or the CW does with like the Flash. I think that's some of the best choreography from a from a superhero martial arts standpoint. But watching some of the fight sequences, watching some of the training montages, again, it doesn't feel like it's being cheesy. It feels like it's taking itself seriously. And I love that the writing feels more mature. I love that they're not just going for cheap gags. I love that they're not just trying to get the audience to laugh. But by the end of season two, you care about characters you didn't think you would care about. And you start seeing more rounded out um, differences in some of the other characters that you were kind of rooting for. Again, going back to Lady Bird, we see characters that are stereotyped one way, but turn to another way because we see more of their life outside of what we initially saw. The last episode, Aaron, is epic. I mean, there is an ending like no other. And it is, it's, it's two things. I can't, obviously I can't say them, but when you get to the last episode, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And then you're going to be like, what? You probably won't. That's what I did. And maybe a lot of other people who are listening to this are like, yes, listen to Patch. He knows what he's talking about. It's a fantastic way to end season two. It sets up perfectly a whole bunch of other things that are going to happen in season three, potentially. It's already been renewed, so we know it's going to happen. And I love the fact that this is a series that's gotten so much traction that YouTube is saying, you know what? Forget the paywall. We're going to let everybody watch this because they see what a golden egg this could be. Wait, they I mean, are, what? Yeah. They are with ads, with commercials, I think in, I don't know, maybe three or four weeks. I, I, can't, I don't know exactly. They're going to release all of season one and two so you can watch them for free. Okay. Well, outstanding. No excuses. Guys like me, we enjoy that free. Strike word. first, strike hard, no excuses. Watch free with that. Watch free. Watch yeah. free. So, so go well, ahead. That, that all sounds amazing to me, of course, as a Cobra Kai fan. But, I, I mean, you got to tell me about the karate. Is there karate in this season? Oh, my gosh. There is karate out the wazoo. There, again, going back to the training montages, there are fight sequences. There are there are things that happen within each dojo, Miyagi-Do and Cobra Kai, that elevate the the wow factor of this series to like a seven or eight, if it was like a two or three, because if you wanted to lapse on something, it could be the karate because I mean, you've got, you know, sand the floor, wax on wax off, but to see how there's, so I'll, I'll say this, there's a sequence that takes place where just like what Miyagi teaches Daniel about sand the floor, wax on, wax off, and how that transitions to something else. 
Daniel is teaching a new movement to a couple of his students that will eventually pay itself off in a really interesting way. I'll just leave it at that. Exciting. And and I think that that actual thing was the moment where I said, okay, now we're cooking with Crisco. This is a series that feels like it can have longevity, that it's not just going for a cheap tactic of saying, let's pull the folks that grew up with this movie series in and keep them here for a few episodes. No, I mean, it feels like it's got expansion. It feels like it's got a lot more drama that can carry itself out. And, and I think that the relationship between Johnny and, and Daniel is even more interesting by the end of season two. You know, we introduced John Kreese, which, I mean, you saw that in the preview, so that's not a spoiler, but John Kreese, Johnny's mentor, there's a really interesting relationship transition with that and how, what happens when he comes back. Um, there's this really great, uh, restaurant scene where Johnny and a, a woman that he is on a date with, um, have to share a table with Daniel and his wife and it becomes, interesting to say the least. So there's just a lot of great moments in the series, but they don't feel like they're just for one reason. They feel like they're fleshing out the story even more. So overall, I think Cobra Kai season two took its maturity level up about three or four notches. And I think it earned, it earned my respect. I mean, I was, I was excitedly apprehensive after the first season. I'm totally invested now for season three after what I saw in season two. Well, that's awesome. That's a strong recommendation. And frankly, everyone I know that has watched it has also been giving equally strong recommendations. So you do not seem to be in the minority. This seems to be a reoccurring thing. Everybody out there, if you haven't gotten a chance to check it out, we definitely recommend season one. We can both say that because I've seen it. We talked about it. There's an episode where we reviewed it actually on the show if you want to search for that. And then Season two, I plan to get to soonish, probably after SIF, probably another month away from me, but I will get to it this summer at some point. I'm excited to do that and then be able to talk through it with Patrick because I know he loves it so much. It will not be a cruel summer if you do that. <laughs> I love it. So that's good stuff. All right. Well, the next thing up on the list is part of SIF, actually, the Seattle International Film Festival. This is an indie film coming to us here from Lulu Wang. This is a Los Angeles-based classical pianist who turned filmmaker. She was actually born in Beijing, raised in Miami, and educated in Boston. So she has been all over the place. And she has made a few films already. Um, this one, and or two actually, this one and another one called Posthumous. And both of them kind of focus on this immigrant experience, which involves for her straddling the traditions that are rooted in both cultures of uh, American and Chinese. So this movie is one that played at Sundance this year, premiered and really just blew the doors off there. It got all kinds of buzz. People were crawling it one of the best indies of the year already. And I was excited to see it come to SIF. The plot is like this. When a Chinese family discovers that their matriarch has inoperable lung cancer, they decide to keep her diagnosis a secret from her and instead orchestrate an impromptu wedding that allows the whole family to return home, under the guise of celebration, to say goodbye. In her debut lead performance, comedian-musician Aquafina stars as Billy, a writer living in New York City who is told to stay back because her emotions will reveal the secret. Disobeying her family's orders, Billy travels to China to see her grandmother, 
One last time, simultaneously reflecting on the changes both she and her old Chinese haunts have endured. Chinese law does not require doctors to disclose diagnoses to patients. But after living the majority of her life in the United States, Billy struggles to understand how this secret could ethically or emotionally be the right way to say farewell to her grandmother. Now, I tell you all of that. I actually didn't know any of it going into this movie. I had heard the buzz. I was like, oh, I've heard this title being mentioned. It's one of the hotter titles that we have at SIF this year. It's actually going to be the closing night gala film, which is a huge honor. And I figured... I should go see it, right? Because this is going to be one of the indies that's being mentioned come year end awards time. Had no earthly idea it was going to be in mostly Chinese with a little bit of English, but highly subtitled. Was pretty glad that I saw it in the theater, to be honest with you, because I really give them much more attention when it is that, when that's the case. Now I can't go into a lot of detail. I will say I was super shocked about the plot in general, I had no earthly idea that this was a thing. And learning that being able to lie about a diagnosis to a family member is actually a practice in China was even more shocking. The fact that doctors just falsify test records and and straight up lie to someone, it is incredible. But Patrick, I think you and a lot of our listeners are going to really enjoy this film. And by the end of it, I had fallen for it. And, and honestly, it's one that I actually haven't stopped thinking about in the few days or so since I've seen it. It's lingered with me quite a bit because of those ethical questions that make you think. Because your initial thought, of course, is, well, that's awful. How could you ever lie to someone in, about the fact that they're going to die in three months? Why would you ever do that? But we get a chance to really learn about Chinese culture in this movie and why families make this choice. And the way that it is displayed is really insightful, I think, and affecting. It's a poignant drama. Uh, it's a tender comedy. It's got lots of laughs. Uh, Aquafina is a breakout star in this. If you liked her in Crazy Rich Asians, this is a completely different character that you will be blown away that she has this range. So this is not just a performer who's good at being funny. She brings the emotion in this movie in a way that is very indicative of the culture and this idea that the family is is afraid to bring her with because she's going to show emotion. You know, uh, it's an amazing supporting cast as well, especially the grandmother. Uh, and I think that honestly, it's just super well made. the The framing shots are brilliant. Lots of close-up on characters that, that reveals a lot to the audience in their mannerisms. The score is excellent. And I think everything just works together brilliantly in this movie, to be honest. So I've, I've uh, checked with the Google, and it looks like a July of this year release date. I'm wondering, do you see this as being a national release, or is this going to be one of those only in certain markets and then goes away? This is A24, so it's going to get as wide of a release as the best indies get. Okay. I think the buzz behind this one will be, it's going to be like a first performed. It's going to be like an eighth grade. So that's, that's the way it's going to play. Okay. And, um, I hope that it gets out really wide to the point where at least, you know, people get a chance to go see it. 
Worst case scenario, I will say this. The good thing, in a way, that these are released in the summer is that they come out on video in time for awards conversations. So a lot of people who don't get a chance to get to a theater to see The Farewell, you're going to have that opportunity in, say, September, October, and it's going to be able to be in the Oscar and awards conversation even though its theatrical run was done, which is kind of backwards in a way from, like, what you want in a theatrical release. You want those theatrical releases late in the year to be the one, the way to hang. But for these movies that just don't go to that many theaters, they actually get more play once they come out on home video. Gotcha. Okay. But yeah, it is really fantastic. I have it in the, the small four star group right now of films that make up my numbers four through like 10 for the year, but I'm wavering on pushing it higher. I really want to see it again. I, I like it. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I cried my eyes out. I smiled. And those are the kind of emotions I like to experience when I go through these stories. And I learned something and was brought into this culture in a way that I never would have experienced because I just don't know any Chinese Americans. I don't, I don't. So it was like being a part of the family and learning something as if I was there. Um, highly, highly recommended. If you're in Seattle, the SIF Closing Night Gala is on June the 9th. Tickets are on SIF.net. Get them. Go to that if you get a chance. I would highly, highly recommend it. All right, the next film is definitely not a SIF movie that I want to talk about, and that is John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. I hate titles like this, Patrick. I do. They're colon, 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 colon. First of all, if you don't know what parabellum means and you Google it, the first thing that comes up is the American word for, I believe it is semi-automatic handguns or something of the sort. We were doing this in the theater, uh, myself and my buddy Ryan, who were about waiting to watch the movie. We were like, what the heck does that mean anyway? Because we first we got it confused with cerebellum. We thought it was something to do with the brain. So we're trying to like place, like how does this affect the movie? Well, semi-automatic handguns seems to be fitting of the gun foo that you see in John Wick movies. But in Latin, it means prepare for war. That makes a lot more sense. Now, Patrick, I know you have not watched these movies, or I think you have not watched these movies. Is that correct? I have not seen one of them. Okie dokie. Well, my listeners, my listeners have, no, our listeners have, I don't know why I said mine. Our listeners have seen the John Wick movies, and our listeners are excited for John Wick Chapter 3 because they know what's up. The plot is this. Super assassin John Wick is on the run after killing a member of the International Assassin's Guild. And with a $14 million price tag on his head, he is the target of hitmen and women everywhere. It's that simple. Now, when you have a plot that is very simple, it is because, in these movies... The thing that matters is the action. And I'll tell you right up front that the action in this specific entry of the franchise is bar none the best yet. It's something that has made John Wick and John Wick 2 two of my most favorite movies to rewatch. They are so much fun. Keanu going through the process of learning to shoot and training like a madman for these movies really paid off. The choreography in the attack and the fight scenes, Patrick, I, you would respect the heck out of it. Just knowing what you enjoy about seeing that in action in movies like Equilibrium, it is very realistic. 
And I say that while, yes, one man is killing like 10 or 15 at a time, but every shot in these movies, and this is true of John Wick 3, it's something that stands out. Every shot, it's double shots, double taps, triple taps. Like, there's no, oh, he shot in that direction and the guy just fell over and died. They are very methodical. And the timing is precise. They have to reload. They have to change guns. They have to find new methods to, you know, attack because they're out of weapons. It's really, really fun to watch take place. There are three big fight scenes that kind of open this movie. The first, say, 20, 30 minutes. It is probably one of the most intense and awesome 30 minutes of a movie opening I've ever seen in my life. The movie picks up right as right after part two ended. He's literally on the run down the street, and that's where we take it up. And in those three fight scenes, we get to see fighting done with horses, fighting done with library books, and a whole lot of knives. And... I'm not going to say anything else other than your jaw will drop. The collective experience of watching in this in a theater was awesome. There was so much, oh, and, and like tapping the person on the shoulder next to you going like, did you see that head explode? Kind of like reaction. It's a lot like Upgrade. I was trying to explain it to my son, and that was the reference I made. I said, you know how Upgrade was kind of like kind of a cool plot, but really it was just driving you forward to get from really neat little action sequence to action sequence. It, that's John Wick 3. Initially, I came out of this feeling a bit down, though. No matter what, even though the action was phenomenal, there were a lot of new characters introduced, a lot of stuff going on that was fun. But I thought that it kind of focused too much on introducing new mythology which is one of the best parts of the universe, by the way, the mythology of this underground underworld of assassins with a high table and various levels of leadership. And, and uh, oh, man, it's it's really, really awesome. Their own currency via gold coin. And I didn't think that it gave enough attention to the new characters it introduced or the globe trotting locations that John Wick travels to in this movie. Everything is kind of short, like one really cool action sequence with Halle Berry but then she's gone, you know, and, and it seemed to open a lot of doors and ask a lot of questions that it just didn't ever answer. And for me, I was like, this is not how you close out a trilogy, right? Like you're supposed to be giving me endings at this point. Then I saw something perfectly describe how to think about John Wick 3 and make it better. And it made this movie perfect for me or not perfect, but it, it really corrected a lot of those issues. Here's the thing. John Wick first one, was created as a standalone film. It was written by Derek Kolstad, and it was co-directed by two former stunt coordinators, Chad Stahelski and David Leach. Very, very big names in the stunt business. They had actually previously worked with Keanu as stunt doubles on The Matrix. But anyway, the point is that John Wick was not originally thought of as a franchise property, and it was the strong box office response that led to sequelization and an expansion of this assassin underworld mythology so if you think about it like this john wick 2 is the start of a trilogy or series and in, then 3 is the middle movie and not an ending one suddenly those issues you have with it being open-ended kind of can fall away honestly um, and it, it becomes a strength instead so i was able to like have my experience retroactively feel a lot better. 
The silliness in this one is ramped up in a big way. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. Fans of the series are going to see the direction it's going, and some may jump off board, to be honest, because it's really committing at this point to the crazy action cycle. But in the end, man, I just love this world so much, and I don't know if... I will love the way that it goes, but I know that I will at least enjoy the action and be bought into watching everything in this universe that comes out, whether it's a new TV series that's in the work at stars or John Wick chapter four, I'm ready to find out what's going to happen. And I'm ready to have my jaw drop at watching whatever they come up with next as far as stunts go. So I'm a huge fan. I think it's excellent. It is the weakest of the three, but it is still absolutely must watch television or well, I guess it's not television. It's a must watch movie to see in a theater for uh, fans of the first two films. Great. Great. I'm glad it, I'm glad it uh, didn't disappoint. All right. So now which that, which brings us to a little bit of stuff that's been in the news over the last several weeks. There was a movie that came out. I think we, we remember it, Avengers Endgame. Some of you may have heard of it. Set some box office records of you know, a few here and there. Do you remember? I don't know. It, it, is that the one where the X-Men died? I, no, it had a glove and some explosions and some time travel stuff and writers telling you more stuff than you needed about things, filling in plot holes and whatever. I don't know. Anyway... <laughs> Of course, we're talking about Avengers Endgame, probably the biggest box office movie on the planet right now. And it brought up a lot of interesting discussion, not only in our Facebook group, but all over the Internet about how it is setting these monumental box office records. And there's been a lot of feedback regarding, well, did it really set the box office records? Is it ever going to outlast Titanic? Is it going to be gone with the wind and you have to adjust for inflation? And all these things that have allowed myself, and I'm pretty sure Aaron, to go, what's up with this? <laughs> I, I wanted to kind of talk about this for, for a few minutes because one of the questions I had is, why does this matter to us as an audience? I mean, what is it about box office numbers? I mean, we're not getting any of that money. We're the ones contributing to those box office numbers. So why do you see this as being such an important factor for for the audience in general? Well, validation. We all want validation of what we like and we want other people to like it too. It makes us feel good about our choices and frankly, it brings us into community, which is one of the things we love most about watching movies is discussing them with other people. That's why we have a blossoming Facebook discussion group where people come and talk about stuff every single day, all day long. And so part of feeling good about your view of a movie is validating that by knowing that it made a lot of money, which by default tells you that a lot of people went to see it, and you would think that that means that a lot of people liked it. Of course, that's not always the case, um, or that's not always the case as far as a measurable or accurate measurable, because the people that went and saw it and liked it might not be the people with the quote-unquote best taste. And of course, that's a whole other debate, is does that even matter? Because if people are paying to go see it and enjoying it, who cares if it's quote-unquote good or bad? But when it comes to ticket revenue, 
It is a way for us to champion the properties we love, and especially in the world of blockbusters, to be happy that something we personally enjoy has made more money than something that we personally don't enjoy. Yeah, and I I look at that, and I think that it almost combats the notion of what's Oscar-worthy. Because when when January comes around, I think Endgame will get some Oscar nods. It might even get Best Picture nomination. But there are going to be so uh, so many other independent movies, biopics, things that, quite frankly, from a perspective or from a perception, matter more than just superhero nonsense. <laughs> I'm saying that obviously tongue-in-cheek, that I almost wonder, do box office numbers even really matter when it comes to a film's value? I mean, yes, it's highly entertaining. A lot of people went to go see it. I went to go see it. You went to go see it. We covered it. We talk about it. It's got a lot of buzz. But what about the longevity of it? Will it be remembered in 10 years? Will it be remembered in 15, 20 years? Because we talk about movies that are in that same category as Endgame, Gone with the Wind, Titanic, Avatar. And for a movie like Avatar, it's gotten almost like severe backlash in part because of how successful it was. And I wonder, does do, do numbers matter when it comes to how a movie is valued in the long term beyond just how much money it made? Well, I think that it can, absolutely. Because films like Titanic have lived on because of their amazing run at the box office that has dominated for years and decades, and it also won Oscars. But then there's a movie like Avatar, which didn't win any Oscars and has a huge fandom out there or anti-fandom out there that hates it, which is sitting at number one and yet number one worldwide. And yet there are as many haters for it as there are people that love it. And it won no awards. And it has survived in the consciousness and the conversation of moviegoers and film fans because of the amount of money it made. Like that is what the conversation revolves around. And that's where that vitriol comes in. I was saying that desire for people who want it to be toppled by Avengers Endgame because they didn't like Avatar. And so they feel better about Avengers Endgame being the one with the number one spot because they feel that it's more deserving and it's something that they enjoyed. And they don't want it to be an Avatar because they didn't like the movie. And they think it's silly that it has the number one overall. But I mean, but it tells you something like clearly it didn't get to number one worldwide box office numbers by accident. I mean, it got there because people went and saw this movie and people went and saw it over and over and over and over again in order to get it that high. And there is value in that. It does speak to, I think, not only entertainment value, but but just inherent subjective enjoyment of a movie. Well, you've said something that I've started to think about quite a bit. We were talking offline before we uh, we started this episode about Moneyball and about sabermetrics. And you mentioned how baseball today, batting averages don't matter as much as they did 10 years ago, right? And I think there are so many more factors that go into a movie's success, which is a subjective thing anyway. So if we took the subjectivity out and we talk about a film's success being based on numbers, which is math, which is more, you know, more measurable, 
then we are looking at more than just ticket sales. We're looking at inflation, which is always the big, big thing that comes up. Well, Gone with the Wind is still number one because inflation. More people went to go see Gone with the Wind than did, you know, Avengers Endgame or Titanic or Avatar. And there were less people living in the world back in 1939. And yes, there is truth to all that. But all these different factors that take place or take place, all these different factors that, that go into defining a movie's financial success, because there are so many, what that tells me, my personal opinion, it doesn't matter. A movie can be the best to me. It comes down to just being subjective. That you can say that Gone with the Wind, because of inflation and because of the number of ticket sales and having the things against it, like running in less theaters and running with a less populated world, earns it the right to be number one because it had these advantages and these disadvantages against it. That's fine. But the fact is, I'm one of the guys that doesn't like Gone with the Wind. I don't want to sit through three and a half hours. And if it came back to the theater, it would not be a movie that I would want to see. But if you put Avengers Endgame or Titanic or Avatar or, you know, Upgrade for that matter, I would go back and pay money to a theater to see that. And so I've grown to just care less and less about the success of a movie based on its box office numbers because you're always going to have those factors. The ticket price is always going to go up. You're going to add 4K, 3D, IMAX craziness that's going to up the price of admission. You're going to have, you know, ticket sales that happen before six o'clock versus after six o'clock. There are way too many factors here that tell you almost objectively which movie is the most successful of all time. You can use some numbers here, but I mean, you can't take all those factors together and necessarily say this is the definitive one. No, you, you absolutely can't. I mean, no one will ever be able to say anything like that because it's always going to have subjectivity in any system of ranking movies against each other. But I do think that the unadjusted, I'm sorry, the adjusted for inflation gross is the one that has to be looked at when talking about this at all. So for folks that want to talk about how much money Avengers Endgame or any other movie has made, I think that that's important. Because here's the difference, especially when we're considering the domestic numbers. And I don't have the adjusted for inflation worldwide numbers. But for domestic, Avengers Endgame is in third place behind Star Wars The Force Awakens and Avatar. And frankly, it's not going to catch Star Wars The Force Awakens. That It's like 200 million behind Star Wars The Force Awakens domestically. Now, when we look at domestic gross adjusted for inflation, instead of third place... It's in 24th place, Patrick. That is an enormous difference, right? And that puts it in a lot better perspective because you've got movies that are ahead of it. And I'll just run down the list real quick because people are going to be shocked when they hear some of the names of films that have a higher adjusted for inflation gross than Avengers Endgame. Gone with the Wind, Star Wars, The Sound of Music, E.T., Titanic, Titanic's fifth, The Ten Commandments. Jaws, Dr. Shivago, The Exorcist, Snow White, and The Seven Dwarfs, The Force Awakens. Here it is at number 11. 101 Dalmatians, The Empire Strikes Back, Ben-Hur, Avatar, down here at 15th, even though it's number one worldwide in total. 
Return of the Jedi, Jurassic Park. I helped a lot of that one, actually, like 11 times. Although it was a dollar theater, so probably didn't help a ton. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, The Lion King, The Sting, Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Graduate, and Fantasia. Now, whole other conversation is to consider how many of those 24 top movies are Disney, but yeah. Anyway, that's a whole different podcast. It is mind-blowing, the variety, studio notwithstanding, but the variety of subjective value that's placed on any of those. Some of them are classics, some of them are blockbusters, and some of them are somewhat obscure. They're, I mean, they're not obscure. They're, they're, they're well-known. But some of those are not the ones you're like, oh, man, I'd love to see that in the theater. Oh, that's got to have a huge impact on on an audience right there. But when you think of like 101 Dalmatians being ahead of Avengers Endgame, that seems ridiculous. But it is what it is. I think the adjusted for inflation also is helped by the amount of ticket sales and the amount of theaters, too. And there was an article that was that was talking about this, and it said that even Avengers Endgame has help in the amount of theaters that it plays in compared to something like Gone with the Wind or Avatar. Avatar played in less theaters, so you had less, less total times, less ticket sales, right? And the length of the movie matters, and so there's there's the and there's the audience that matters. So the amount of ticket sales can can play as a factor to all those types of things. But I think what I'm learning is that, and I, I know this is an obvious statement, but I just want to go on record as saying this, that a movie's success can't be singled out by its financial gain. Because the fact is there are movies out there that are successful. Case in point, uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding played in theaters for a long time, but it had a slow burn but it started catching traction and it ended up becoming at the time, one of the top 10 movies of its theatrical run year. And I remember reading that and seeing, gosh, this isn't, this movie isn't even, I mean, it's, it's not like a wow movie, but it started to capture audiences attention that it had high rewatchability. And so it stayed in theaters. long, And so it became one of those movies that, while you're not talking about it in terms of a classic or in terms of a, wow, this is a blockbuster, it was a movie that had success at a time. It just hit the right notes for the right people. And the length of time that it stayed in the theaters because of that success and because of the fact that you don't have things like, you know, instant on demand a few weeks later, uh, driving that. I think those are other factors that have to be taken into account. You know, how popular is this movie going to be in three months? or in five months, or in seven months. I mean, I don't see Avengers Endgame staying in the theater through the summer. I don't. But that's also, and of course, that is another element. You, it, it, we were talking about earlier baseball and statistics and how you can't just take one statistic in a vacuum because there's it, there's all these different elements that play into each and every like one hit that occurs. You have to figure where the fielders were and the wind, like all these different elements to the game that you need to know in order to really understand whether or not that hit was how that hit should be valued or devalued or whatever. Case in point is the box office this summer. Disney is overloaded. Disney has the Lion King remake coming out. 
we have an X-Men film coming. We have Godzilla coming. So when your film plays and it's competition in the coming months after your film releases also has a major factor in your longevity. And that won't be the same for every movie. So it's like you're not actually evaluating things on an even and fair playing field, right? Because if Titanic was released today, how would it play if it had to deal with Godzilla coming out three weeks after it, right? Or or The Lion King coming out in the summer after it. Maybe it doesn't last nearly as long because of those things. We don't know. We can only speculate, which I understand is fun for people, but I agree with you, Patrick. Just don't get too wrapped up in it and try to place too much value in it by saying that's why a movie is quote-unquote better than another. Yeah, it definitely makes for a fun conversation, and I think what it does, to your point earlier, is it brings out people's uh, people's passions. I mean, people love to champion the things that they love, and when you have something that validates a movie like its box office numbers, that's a that's a cool thing to do. Um, as long as it doesn't get, you know, snarky and, and mean in a conversation, I'm all about that. So. <laughs> well, this was good, man. I enjoyed this, and uh, and that's all from us. You know, we're glad you guys joined us on another episode of FF Plus. Coming up in just a few short days, we'll be back with another full episode of Feeling Film, talking about one of last year's missed conversations, Bumblebee. So you'll want to tune in for that. Until then, Aaron, thanks for another great conversation. We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places, and I'd love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter, but be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.